As we continue in our series on Rise, and called Rise, and we look at the Gospel of John, I want you to pull out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 20. I just want to begin with a story. Andy Stanley writes in his book, It Came From Within, about a young man whose life was transformed. Not necessarily a young man, actually a middle-aged man. He, he describes that he first met this individual uh, when he was in a coffee shop, and he kind of gazed upon this individual, and you could tell he was angry. You could tell he was lonely. You could tell he was a bitter man. In fact, Stanley uh, recounts that this individual came up to him and asked him, are you Andy Stanley? And, and he didn't want to answer yes. You know, like, no, I'm not. Uh, but he said to him, you know, somebody in your church gave me one of your CDs. I just got to tell you, I got a problem with Christians. I got a problem with God. I am not a believer. And he began to recount just that he had been married twice, that he'd been married for 30 years, he'd been divorced, and then his wife had passed away. Then he'd remarried again. That marriage had only lasted for three years, and he was, again, bitter and lonely. And uh, Dr. Stanley asked him, you know, maybe I could connect you with one of the pastors in our church family who could just talk to you about the hope that's available in Christ. And reluctantly, Joe agreed. And then Andy Stanley recounts that several months later, he saw this same man in that same Starbucks, and yet he was a different person. He, he came up to him, and, and Andy noticed immediately he was carrying a Bible, and he was carrying a book on marriage, and he, and he came up to him, and he said, you know, I'm getting remarried. And, and Andy said, to who? He said, to my ex-wife, Susan, we're going to get married again. See, he'd given his life over to Christ, and Susan had been so amazed with the change that occurred in him, she'd given her life to Christ, and they were marrying again. And what this highlights for us is that when we talk about the resurrection, we're not just talking about an historical event. We're talking about an event that changes the lives of people, that not only changed the lives of those who were witnesses to it in that first century, that not only changed the lives of those who came after that in, in the church, but changes lives today. That without a risen Savior, there's no gospel. There's no message of Christ. There's no hope of eternal life. There's no hope in this life. Peter put it this way, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Paul said it later when he said, How important is the Christian life, or the resurrection to the Christian life? How important is the resurrection to history? Here's how he says it. For I delivered to you as first importance what I received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and again, accordance with the Scripture. The resurrection of Jesus, the risen Savior, is the core of Christianity. It's the truth that changes lives and has always changed lives. And as we look at John chapter 20, I want you to follow with me the story, because last week we talked about the resurrection, but now we're going to kind of continue it. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says this, On the evening of the first day, when the disciples were together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst the disciples. And he said to them, Peace, peace be with you. And after he had said them, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And the disciples were overjoyed with what they saw as they saw Jesus. And then Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And now you are to forgive sins, just as they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And what we see here is that this must have been a unique day. Think of the day it had been that three days had passed since Jesus' death and he'd been crucified and he'd been put in a tomb. And everybody would have been busy with the rituals of the Passover feast and now the first day of the week has come. 
And the reports are starting to filter in. The news is burst that the tomb is empty. And the guards tell a tale of angels coming and rolling aside the stone. Already the chief priests and, and Pilate are spinning a story that the, that the disciples have stolen the body to excuse what might have been in a miracle. But then the story begins to roll in also that angels have appeared to the women and told them of a risen Savior, that John and Peter have rushed to the tomb, and there they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty and the linen cloth lying there with no body wrapped in them any longer, that Mary Magdalene tells of selling someone beside the grave who she later come to understand was Jesus, where several of the disciples had seen someone on the road to Emmaus who had taught them, and they came to understand that that was Jesus. And these stories are all trickling in, but the disciples, the disciples are still kind of hidden away in the upper room, fearful of the Jews. The text tells us that literally Jesus passed through a locked door. Though in a physical body, he had those miraculous powers. And he came to them and he said, Peace, peace be with you. My peace be with you. And in that moment, we could see that what Jesus did is Jesus' appearance calmed the fears of the disciples. They were huddled away, thinking they might be arrested just as Jesus would, that maybe that the Romans would finally want to quell this uprising by, by taking their lives. They were probably kind of thinking about how and when can we escape the city. And yet in that moment, Jesus comes to them, and he says, peace, peace be with you. Just think of the comfort it might have meant because these men felt some guilt and they felt some shame. They hadn't stood with Jesus in the garden. They hadn't gone to his trial and offered his defense. They were not there at the cross. They had abandoned him in that moment. And Jesus ignores that and he comes to them, he says, peace, peace be with you. And then he takes another step. He says to them, just as I was sent by God to do the work of the ministry, I am sending you to do the work of the ministry. They'd understood that prior to his death, but his death had destroyed all dreams that they would continue the ministry. And they just wanted to kind of shrink back to their cities and renew their careers and, and put an end to this. And Jesus says, no, just as I was sent to do the work of the ministry, I am now sending you as my disciples. And you think of it, just what we saw up here on the stage today is kind of the, is part of the scope of that ministry. You know, sometimes we think of that as a ministry only of evangelism or of church planning, but that ministry extends to helping children around the world. It extends to bringing the gospel to places where the gospel isn't. You know, last year I had the chance with several members of our church family to attend something called the Issachar Summit. And it's a gathering of ministries from around the world. It's a gathering of philanthropists and, and donors. And it's and a gathering of church leaders who are kind of using their churches to be involved in that. And, and there we learned about everything from morality projects for illiterate people to reaching the unengaged and unreached peoples of the world to church planning, to evangelism, to community development projects like World Help. And I know for me it just expanded my sense of what God is doing under the around the world under the umbrella of this is my ministry, now go do it. This is what Christ did, now go do it. There were donors there, philanthropists, amazing uh, people who were committed to the Great Commission. There was a financier there from Philadelphia who recounted over the last 20 years, he'd given half of his profits from every deal he'd made and it was over $50 million. There was an individual who was one of the founders of Panera Bread there and shared of the tens of millions that he'd given in all of these kinds of projects around the world. 
And it was just a great illustration that when Jesus says, as I have been sent, now I send you, how we can participate in that around the world. It was in that place and during that time that our desire to reach Nepal kind of was spawned, and that project is now in its second year. But Jesus didn't stop with recommissioning them. The text tells us that he poured out his Spirit and that the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to do the work of the ministry. You know, the ministry that Jesus gave the disciples was overwhelming. It was to reach the entire world. He didn't leave them, though, just with that physical uh, sense and that commandment. He said, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. Now receive the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, I'm going to give you a ministry that is going to involve the forgiving of sins. He also said that there will be in this equation people whose sins will be forgiven, but there will be people whose sins are retained. You know, some struggle with this, but it's just a continuation of this linkage of the Holy Spirit with the idea of repentance. In Acts 2.38, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins will be forgiven. You know, we think, is he really telling us we have the power to forgive sins or not forgive sins? And what he's saying is, is that when we communicate the gospel, there are those that will respond and forgiveness will occur. And there will be those who will reject the gospel and their sins won't be forgiven. So there's this powerful combination of this commissioning of the disciples, of this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and of this commissioning to do the ministry, which involves this repentance of sin. But you know, there's a problem. Do you notice what the problem is in this setting? Anybody? The problem is that one of the disciples is not there. His name is Thomas, and John turns there next. Follow along in verse 24. He says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So when then Jesus left and then Thomas returned, the disciples said, We have seen the risen Lord. And he said to them, Really? I don't believe you. He says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Text tells us then a week later, Jesus' disciples were gathered in this house again. And Thomas was with them. And again, though the doors were locked, Jesus came to this place and he stood amongst them and again he renewed his pledge. He said, peace, peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas, the one who wasn't there a week before. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, And then Jesus told them, because you have seen, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I think of this, I don't want us to miss the fact that we think of Thomas as one of the most uh, kind of obvious doubters in the Scripture. I think it's a little bit of an unfair portrayal because if Thomas had been there a week before, he wouldn't have had any doubt. He would have made that same pledge immediately. But Thomas needed tangible proof of the resurrected Christ. He needed tangible proof of the risen Christ in that he is like so many of us who desire that when we experience periods of doubt, either prior to our testing Christ or even afterwards. It's like Thomas is a bit of a model for us of what it means to be a doubter. And in Thomas, I see three things. Don't miss these. Write them down. Doubt is the first step on the road to belief. See, for Thomas, this was just part of his process that he needed to go through. He wasn't there when everybody else saw Jesus. I don't, maybe he didn't trust the disciples. Whatever the case, he needed tangible proof. I read that and I thought of a man that I'd listened to a podcast just about three weeks ago from him. His name is Lee Strobel. 
And, and Lee was a non-believer. Lee was a doubter. Lee was a skeptic and a pessimist. He didn't like Christians. He was angry at God. He was angry in his own life. Uh, during that stage in his life, he was, uh, worked for the Chicago Tribune as a, as a journalist. He edited their legal section. As such, he'd seen some of the darkest things that occur in life on the streets and in, the, in courts of law. And so he was a skeptic. And one day in, in, um, in his 30s, his wife came to him, Leslie, and said, Lee, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Lee was shocked. He said the first thought to his mind was, I'm going to have to divorce this woman. But then he said, you know what, I'm going to explore this. I'm going to prove these Christians wrong. I'm just going to disprove the resurrection, and Leslie will abandon this crazy thing, and our lives will be back to normal. But in a two-year investigation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lee says at the end of his journey, he came to believe that it took more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it took to believe in the resurrection. And he gave his life to Christ. And this angry, unkind, doubting, pessimistic man became a loving, caring father and husband. But more than that, he left his career as a journalist and went into the ministry. And today he's one of Christianity's best-known apologists. See, Lee decided if Christ did really rise from the dead, if that's true, if the resurrection is true, I need to give my entire life to him. I need to give my life to him completely. And Lee gives us evidence that the first step to belief is doubt. Another one that we see evidenced in Thomas' life is that God will grant us discoveries on the road to belief. See, my picture is, is that Thomas wasn't present when Jesus was first there. And then Jesus left, and then Thomas was present with the disciples, and he made this claim. I don't think any of the disciples told Jesus about that. I think Jesus was there at that moment, and he heard what Thomas said, and he said, what Thomas needs, I will grant. The discovery that Thomas needs, I will grant. And so he appears eight days later to Thomas in this same place. And he asks Thomas if he wants to do what he asked to do. I don't, the text doesn't tell us Thomas had to. Because in the moment that he saw the resurrected Christ, what did he say? My God, my Lord. That whatever we need in order to trust Christ, God will provide. And then I think the final thing we learned from Thomas is that everyone can choose committed belief. The greatest doubter, the greatest pessimist, the greatest skeptic can choose Christ and then choose to follow him with all his life. That's what Thomas did. All of his doubts were set aside. All of his doubts were dispelled. And Thomas knew that because of his confession of Christ that his entire life had changed. Christian tradition tells us that Thomas, when the Christians were scattered after Jesus had left and there was persecution in Jerusalem, Thomas went to India. And he served there in India for over 20 years, leading people to Christ and planting churches. That Thomas's life came to an end when several non-believers came to him and said to him, if you do not renounce Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, as the resurrected ones, we will take your life. And Thomas said, I will never renounce my God and my Lord. And then a stake was driven through his heart, and he became a martyr. See, the gospel just isn't some historical truth. The resurrection isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It is something that changes lives. It's not just us kind of playing church. It's the decision to follow Christ and to give him our entire lives. The disciples' commitment to the Great Commission was renewed as they encountered Jesus. The turnaround was complete. Everyone was on board, except there's still one problem. There's still somebody who wasn't present. You know who that was? 
Well, it's hinted to at the end of it when Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are you because you have believed because you are seen, but more blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Who's that? That's us. See, John closes his gospel. This is really kind of the final two verses. And the next week, we're going to kind of look at an epilogue that he writes, kind of an addendum uh, on a personal nature. And he closes it by saying these words. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these things that are written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. You see, John's looking back 30, 40 years later at that moment when Jesus came and met them in the room and that moment where he offered that recommissioning and that filling of the Spirit and that ministry of repentance and forgiveness. He's looking back at that moment with Thomas, thinking about those moments, and now he's thinking of his audience in mind. He's thinking of those who will read his book in the future, his account of Jesus' life. He's thinking of all the moments that he saw with Jesus, and they're huge, and he tells us another place they're more than could fill this book. And so he chooses selectively, and he chooses selectively for the purpose of persuading people that Jesus was real, and that Jesus' ministry was incredible, and that Jesus brought about change in people's lives that was remarkable and that Jesus changes all of our lives. See, John had an evangelistic purpose in mind as he wrote his gospel. He was thinking of us. In a sense, he's commissioning us. He focuses on Jesus' identity as the Christ throughout the gospel. He thinks of him as the Messiah throughout the gospel. He writes with the purpose that people would believe in the truth of Christ and that their lives might be changed, that they might experience his transforming power. His goal is salvation. It's new life and his transformation, and he's clear about that. And I think about it, when we think of it today, we can think of the scriptures as being reinforcing of our faith, but what really reinforces our faith is the transformation we see in people's lives because they've trusted in the resurrected Christ. That the power of Christianity, though our creeds are strong and our beliefs are strong, is really in Christian character. Jesus manifested in people's lives like Joe and like Lee and like Thomas. And whenever you see a light that's been transformed by the grace of God, you see a witness of what? You see a witness of the risen Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you took the time to renew in the disciples their commission to do the work of the ministry. That you didn't leave them alone to do that, but you empowered them with the Holy Spirit. And you charged them to preach a gospel that included the forgiveness of sins to those who did not Welcome that forgiveness, that separation from you. Lord, we're grateful that you chose to meet Thomas in his need, in his doubt, in his pessimism, in his skepticism, and that he shows us that there's tangible proof of you, the risen Lord, that we would turn to you. We praise you, Lord, that you've chosen to include us in that, that the gospel continues to be preached and people respond, that our lives are changed. Lord, I would pray if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know you, hasn't experienced the life-transforming power of the resurrection, that they would choose today to shed their doubt and to follow you because you are the risen Lord. And that, Lord, that we might be encouraged as followers of Christ to continue to be involved in that message and spreading that message and being involved in your ministry. That where we may be sad and disappointed and hurt and fearful, that you would give us hope 
and that you would energize us for your work. Lord, we pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.